Podcast 172, The Confusing Ball of Yarn That Is Wicked Lester, Episode 1. All right, Kiss Army. You wanted the best? You got the best. Now close your eyes. You're about to be podcasting. Welcome back to your podcast. I'm Ken Mills, one of your hosts here today, and today I'm joined by Gary Schaller. Hello. And we are joined by Julian Gill of the KISS FAQ podcast. Oh, I'm sorry, that's my cue. Hi! (laughs) Welcome back to the podcast, everyone. We hope that you checked out our last episode, which was just a labor of love. And Julian, uh, I have to thank you for all the hard work you did on it, because you produced it. It was something that we're calling Podkistory Revisited, and it is a look at the beginnings of what we know as KISS, right? And you put it up on the KISS FAQ feed, and it's also available on YouTube if you want to see it. We also put it on the PodKISS feed, and we've had a lot of really good reactions to it. So thank you for your production on it. Well, thank you for your voice, because it just wouldn't be a quality piece of product without the tones of your sexy voice bringing it to life. No, you did an absolutely fantastic job. And what people don't really realize is how much effort you put into that and how many times I made you say the line over and then over and then (laughs) over. And then you decide that I'd had it all wrong in the first place. It would do three of your own lines. (laughs) Well, it was great working with you on it. And the good news for everybody... We're going to do another one. Oh, we are. It was. It came out like a, sounding like a Boston album. That's how. That's how well produced it was. And it's more than a feeling. So yeah, it all works out. Good. Today we're doing something that we've never really done in podcast. That's right, going where no podcast has gone before. Today we are talking about that confusing ball of yarn that makes up the thing that is known as Wicked Lester. You can't get much more prehistory than the band that predated KISS. And I don't think there's many KISS podcasts that have really talked about what we're talking about today. We are discussing Wicked Lester, the band. And you would think that after 14 years of talking about KISS that we would have talked more about this band. But believe it or not, there are some KISS fans out there who are saying, who and what are Wicked Lester? And just imagine if you were to see this band and you hear... You wanted the best, you got the best. The hottest band in the land, Wicked Lester.
ゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥルトゥ Yeah, I don't hear、uh, the crowd doesn't roar after that one necessarily. Right. Not as easily as it does on Detroit Rock City. Doesn't mean they couldn't, but it just didn't work that way. Julian Gill, when, when you hear the words Wicked Lester, what pops into your head? What, what do you think about when you hear Wicked Lester? I think about becoming a Kiss fan because for me, when I bought my first Kiss albums at Music City in Binghamton, New York, They also sold bootlegs from behind the counter. And they said, hey, when, when you go in there and you buy three Kiss cassettes, they think you're flush and got lots of money. And they said, hey, we've just got these new tapes in. And one of them was Wicked Lester. And this is like 1987. And so it's right tied in with me becoming a Kiss fan. That I was hearing that at the same time as I was exploring the Kiss catalog. So I get a really warm and fuzzy feeling whenever I hear Wicked Lester because it takes me back to. You know, when I was a youngster, just starting to get interested in the band and taking those first steps on a very long and winding road. And your first Kiss album was? Asylum. Asylum. So it's weird to think that, like, for example, Unmasked, Asylum, Dressed to Kill, and Wicked Lester could have all been in the same month for you. Pretty much. Yeah. That's what's so cool about it, you know? That's, what, that's one of the things I love about this band. I think that's one of those things that explains a lot about me is, you know, that I did experience all those things and catching up in a very short period of time. I didn't just go, you know, and kind of casually. I was all in. So it, it, it kind of reflects on a lot of what I've done since and kind of the insanity to which I've approached this crazy and wacky band that we love. It may have been a big、uh, part of you becoming a Kiss archivist. Oh, it immediately was because I, you know, once I had that first bootleg, you know, I soon had Fancy Fair and、uh, the other fancy mix and started keeping track and writing down lists of songs that were associated with the band that didn't exist. And, you know, I got very interested in finding demos very fast. So, you know, that was back in the days you could go into used record shops and you'd see, what was it,、uh, the Barbarize cover. Which、uh-huh. to this day is one of those ones that I'll get a fuzzy feeling about as well. Because going into,、um, there's this other store over near Johnson City, New York, and I call it the Purple Record Store because that's all I remember about it. And you'd go in there and he'd have the new records out on display. I just remember seeing that cover.、Hmm. And I didn't know it was a ripoff of,、uh, I think, Judas Priest or something, but, you know, all these things kind of helped mold me into the fan I became. So, on one hand, it, it helped shape you as a KISS archivist. On the other hand, it taught you to question everything. So, Gary Schaller, what comes to your head when we say Wicked Lester? It's actually really similar to Julian's story because it was also New York and it was also late 80s, early 90s. And it also involved bootlegs. So, I'm actually wondering if it might have been the same, like a dub of the same tape, although. You know, I was downstate New York around New York City, and you were upstate New York、uh, many miles away. But I remember really fondly and vividly being 16,、uh, and that very hot summer in New York, listening to the, I guess the, the two things, I, the two tapes that I listened to most in my Walkman were Dress to Kill 
and the bootleg of Wicked Lester that I got at, geez, I think it's called Record Stop or Rock and Rex, one of those two in Westchester, New York. And I, I think I had the same kind of experience. Of, uh, uh, they knew I was a Kiss fan and they would hook me up with whatever was like new or different or interesting. And, and that was one of the first Kiss bootlegs I got. The other uh, was um, the Paris 1976 on cassette, which was also wonderful. Um, but I just loved Wicked Lester. I adore that album. And I loved hearing Gene and Paul, their young, clear voices. Um, I really thought, you know, this was a cassette with no song credits. So obviously I knew uh, Love Her All I Can and She, but I mean, I figured they must have written all the rest of the songs. Um, I loved that it was such a um, different style from what became Kiss. The other thing that was really neat about this cassette, and I, Julian, I wonder if this was true about your cassette as well, is that it started with the Wicked Lester songs and then it had the 1973 Kiss demos on it. Yep, same. A- absolutely the same. And it was pretty sludgy as well. So but it was uh, it was good enough to get an idea, but it was also it whet your appetite because you knew you weren't hearing the very best. So yep. you wanted to find something and actually hear it, especially the vocals. Yeah, yes, exactly. Yeah, you can hear uh, probably true of yours as well. You could hear like things. How do, how do I say this? Uh, it sounded like it was a recording that was recorded over something else. There are, there's art, artifacts of other things in the background. Some of them sound slowed down and it's like, it's, uh, it's an oral mess, A-U-R-A-L mess. And, uh, and also just wonderful. I have such nostalgia for that recording. To me, what Wicked Lester was, was something that you would read occasionally in what are now yellow pages from rock magazines in the 70s. It was almost a whispered thing because Kiss really didn't want you to know too much about this, right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't hear any Wicked Lester stuff until the 80s. And, you know, you mentioned the name of the store you went to. Mine was Record Connection because every store that was a record store seemed to have to have record connect or record connection or critical sound or you know some sort of weird mm-hmm. pun kind of name but <laughs> we're going to do another episode strictly on the roundtable discussion of the wicked lester album but today we're going to talk a little bit about the story of who is wicked lester what was wicked lester and what happened to it and we're going to go back to early 1971 and what was Peter Chris doing in early 1971, Julian, just to kind of set the stage of what was going on with our guys? Peter, by 1971, was playing in clubs at, with Lips. Chelsea was on the down, and he was just continuing to try and make it. He was grinding away, trying to make it work in whatever situation came along while looking for new opportunities. Mm-hmm. And the reason that we talk about that is because it's important to like get an idea for how this community that Kiss was working in was kind of, you know, it's, it's a small world after all kind of a thing, right? For example, people think about New York and you think about this huge, you know, metropolis, but the music community is actually kind of all knitted together, which we'll see down the road here a little bit. And there's a band called Rainbow, correct, Julian? 
that's uh, how things are currently kind of figured out. And, and don't forget, I think one thing that's important to stress to people is that the archiving, the knowledge is never done. You're always learning something new. You're always discovering something new. The general understanding right now is that the precursor to all of this um, that kind of started with Gene and Paul was a band called Rainbow. Now, the reason that we have to mention Rainbow is to kind of set the stage for Wicked Lester. Julian, how did Rainbow eventually become Wicked Lester, and who was in Rainbow off the top of your head? Well, let's start with what how Rainbow was formed. And Rainbow was basically born out of Gene meeting Brooke Strander, and the two started recording demos in Brooke's, um, I think it was his apartment living room, served as the first studio. So Gene was very keen to get a lot of his song ideas down onto tape and he found a very gifted musician in Brooke and I don't recall the exact uh, context of how the two met it's probably in one of Ken Sharp's books uh, in, in quite a lot of detail or perhaps Kurt and Jeff have, have covered that ground but whatever the case they soon decided to start putting a band together and that's where people such as Paul Stanley enter the frame in that he called responding to an ad and I think Gene once described him as being far too earnest uh, about joining a band. But whatever the case is, they, they put together a band that consisted of Gene, Brooke, uh, Stephen Cornell, who was a mutual friend of both Gene and Paul on guitar, and a drummer called Joe Davidson, or a drummer named Joe Davidson. Uh, so that was the... The, the prototype, the first formation of Rainbow, and apparently they only ever did one performance, one live show that uh, amazingly was taped. So um, that that's Rainbow, and soon afterwards they transitioned in name. They got rid of Joe and replaced him with a drummer named Tony Zarella and became Wicked Lester. Mm -hmm. And that was in autumn of 71, correct? Roughly. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not going to try and pin a, a tail on a donkey here to put exact dates because it's just so fluid in terms of when things were happening. Um, you know, in, in the last two weeks, some very fascinating information about Gene um, when he was in the Catskills has surfaced. That's really kind of changed the timeline a lot. So let's just say there's more to come on that. A lot more. I love those pictures that popped up recently. Weren't those fantastic? Yeah, yeah, like a kind of like a chubby bearded Gene, like a big hippie, <laughs> and uh, I guess it was Bullfrog Beer was the band. That's right. I, I mean, you, you could tell he was auditioning for the Doobie Brothers at some point, dressed like that. <laughs> so, sometime around November, Wicked Lester starts recording demos. And the material would include Long Long Road, She, and Love Her All I Can.
At some point, Wicked Lester get a one-album deal with Epic Records. However, the label apparently does not care for Stephen Cornell. And with the growing personal issues between him and Paul, he is asked to leave the band. Now, I'm quoting a fantastic author there. His name is Julian Gill, so if these words sound familiar, Julian, that's where I'm getting those from. Yeah, I, I wish you didn't sometimes because, uh, you know, Gene has a great section in one of his books. I can't remember whether it was Sex, Money, and Kiss or Kiss and Make Up, where he actually has the letter f- firing Stephen um, reproduce so it's got the actual date that he let him go and kind of Gene awkward it's it's like it was uh, dictated someone who actually put his ah oh, shucks um, uh, here's me kind of doing the deed to ask Stephen Coronel to leave the band ah oh, shucks <laughs> so you know very un-Gene like right sorry if you already said this but what was the reason the label didn't like Steve he didn't wasn't rock star enough got it okay and as you mentioned that during the first incarnation of wicked lester they performed in public twice you said there's a recording of it there is and uh ken sharp heard the recording you know way back when brooke estrander had it uh before he passed away so who knows what's happened to it since i've heard rumors that uh the tape has moved on in a positive direction but um you know, that's where a lot of the song titles come from. And also, let's go back to what you just said there, that they only performed twice. We don't know. We What we do know is that they performed far more than previously thought. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the 90s and the early 2000s, particularly if you're looking at any of the stuff out of the, the Kiss album Focus, there was an assumption that they just hadn't performed. Uh, but more dates are coming to light, and I don't want—I don't want to go into any of those details because uh, someone is working on a project, Ooh. and if—and if they, you know, take it to the part where they think they can share it, hopefully, all that uh, kind of information that uh, they've put together will come out. But uh, let's just say, uh, very few shows, but uh, not two. Mm-hmm. And I'm looking at what's in the Alive Forever book in terms of the songs that we know were played at least one of those shows, the one where there's some details about what they played. And I see things like Little Lady, which which became Going Blind, and Eskimo Sun and Love Her All I Can and Keep Me Waiting. So we've heard we've heard a bunch of that, but it'd be so interesting to hear the hear them perform live. Mm-hmm. You know? Now on Wikipedia, the font of all knowledge, it says that the first show <laughs> took place it, it says that the first show took place at the Rivoli Theater in South Fallsburg, New York on April 23rd, 1971. It was really well delivered, very dry. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah, d- d- just give me a chunk of Himalayan salt to chew on <laughs> while reading Wikipedia, because you're going to need a very large uh, pinch of salt. Without doubt, they performed at Rivoli uh, Theater, because that's well-established fact, but everything else. Well, it says here that the second in late summer 1971 was at an Atlantic City, New Jersey hotel hosting a B'nai B'rith youth organization event. And we also know Staten Island before that. Two sets in Staten Island. Yeah. Which is the one in the in the book, the uh, Kurt and Jeff book that says it was archived, audio archived. Yeah, and then uh, a few years ago, um, I, I think it was when Brooke died, there was a good article, and one of his students actually recorded a Wicked Lester show for him. Mm. They then taped over it, apparently. So, Wow. <sighs> so who knows? I mean, I, I think that's the fun of it. You know, you've got Wicked Lester. You've got the, the, the mystery 
that's tied up in a, you know, did they, didn't they, they didn't perform. Oh, wait, they did. You know, there's a tape. Oh, wait, we can't hear it. Oh, Paul Stanley just found a reel. Yeah, you know, all these kind of bits and pieces that come together. Again, keep the magic there. So we're not like we have done with Kiss. We've overanalyzed absolutely everything, but yet we're still discovering new things. Wicked Lester still has that sheen of unknown. You still feel like an archaeologist. You feel like Howard Carter. You've discovered the entry to a tomb, but you're still digging and clearing out the rocks and the dust. current kiss right now as they're saying goodbye to us but what i'm really enjoying right now is going back to the early days and like kind of figuring it all out again you know what i mean because as you're saying every so often a new nugget will fall out of history It'll, something will come loose and it'll be a little factoid something we never really knew before and it's fantastic oh for sure i mean these are the eras that that are most intriguing to me is the ones we about which we know the least you know um this this era the, the elder era, the things where like so much was happening that we never got to see the light of day. Mm-hmm. It's those mysteries that Gary mentioned. You know, think back to you know a couple of months ago. One of the when we were talking about those bootlegs, Gary and I were buying in New York in the sorry New York in the in the late nineteen eighties. Uh, there were songs that weren't by Kiss on a lot of those that were peppered in within those. That became a challenge to me right through. You know, recent months where we finally found out who was the actual performer of one of those songs that circulated on a tape. So again, it's about adding to the knowledge, correcting things. And, you know, for me with Wicked Lester, we knew that some songs were by Gene and Paul, but finding out where all the other songs had come from, oh my goodness, that took just the longest time to find those original versions as well. I mean, that's why I love Wicked Lester. I don't like the music as much as the adventure. Mm. And it, it actually takes an army to uh, figure out which songs are really Kiss and which songs are by some Swedish band or something like that, right? I mean, it's fans all over the world coming together. Like, oh, hey, I, I actually know that band. You know what I mean? So it's kind of cool. Yeah, it takes a village. And, you know, there's always someone who says, well, that's clearly not Paul Stanley singing. I mean, how could you have been so, so silly to think that was Paul? Well, in 1988, when no one knew much about the band to so the kind of the de- uh, the detail that we're, we have available on Wikipedia these days, you know, 
And you had a, a tape that was mumbled and garbled with bleed through and multi-generational degradation. Yeah, sometimes you weren't sure. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like Paul. Wait, it, uh, I don't know. You know, so it was so much easier today with that community knowledge at your fingertips because, yeah, you put out a song, say, hey, anyone ever heard this? Someone, you know, from Swaziland goes, oh, yeah, that's so-and-so. Hey, all I know that is, you know, according to 16 Magazine, Peter Chris played on every track on Dynasty, and he was excited. Yeah, I, everything I need to know about Kiss, I, I learned from Headliners Kiss by John Swenson. So Yeah, so there was a lot of on-purpose misinformation. So Deliberate. Deliberate. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got this band, they're playing a few gigs, and they run into Electric Lady Studios engineer Ron Johnson. You want to tell us about that, Julian? Right, so Ron Johnson was the staff engineer at Electric Lady, and they basically nagged him into recording. Like, go in there. Like, hey, I've got this really great band. You know, we're going to be stars. You've got to record us. And, well, eventually they started getting some spec time, which uh, basically meant in between established bands uh schedules they um kind of showed up so they started recording ideas and the problem with this timeline again is we don't know exactly what's going on when we have one of gene's day planners where he's talking about when he was recording certain songs and if i was better prepared i'd have one of those pages out right now but i'm not so i do apologize a little mystery has to remain so they start laying down ideas with Stephen cornell that's where the basic ones start with steve still in the band and do we have a sense of how much because i'm looking at the track listing here and who wrote what do we have a sense of how much uh, of this material was written at that time or did, versus them I know we're going to talk about the music more another time, but, you know, were they writing as a band or is this more of like they each came in with their own stuff? Each and it's Gene and Paul. And from, from the get-go, it's Gene comes in with his songs, you know, stuff like Simple Type, uh, Little Lady, yeah. um, and She. Uh, that was called that had a different title at the time and paul comes in with you know it's like lennon and mccartney to a certain extent you know uh paul's elevator music or how did john lennon once criticize paul's stuff um for being too pop because if you do listen to paul's stuff on that album molly Mm. yeah that is total paul mccartney as you know well but they they both have their own ideas and then ron brings them other material to record because you know maybe he didn't like all of the songs that they had recorded to uh i think they put together a uh, 15 song or so acoustic reel you know so they certainly had material that ron was choosing and he wasn't choosing a lot of it so he brought in additional stuff from dick james publishing for them to record 
So that's exciting. Just what you just said. I, I don't think I'd ever thought about that. There, there's so many versions of, of the 10 or so songs that became the Wicked Lester album. But you're saying that there's also acoustic demos for some of this stuff. There, there's more, and, and again, I, I don't think I'd call them acoustic demos, and we only found, and everyone, that is, this is because courtesy of the Star Child, you know, having his own Twitter feed, you know, thank you very much, Paul, for sharing that, <laughs> that photo of the Wicked Lester acoustic reel. I, I, oh, that's just, right, that's right, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Sorry, that's, that's where that came from, and that came from Paul preparing material for Backstage Pass, a book that's, you know, not been warmly received, so we now find out more information about the sorts of songs that they were doing and um that came that was uh right around the time of the cruise or before the cruise last year so paul unearthed this acoustic reel of wicked lester that was dated august the 7th 1971 and i have assumed that it's them running through their catalog of songs much in the way that they did the bell sound studio demos when kiss was going into the studio for kenny kerner and richie wise to kind of pick the material from it was their whole i think it was their whole catalog hopefully paul will be able to write more about it i asked him on the cruise you know what he had done with it you know and he 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 just gave us a long explanation about the importance of baking reels which i thought was hilarious but might have been interesting to some others and did not answer the question particularly i guess right Right. No, he was he was Paul Stanley in his response. So, you know, what did yeah. I say about the mystery has to remain sometimes? Yeah. But what we got out of that was these song lists. So um, I'm just trying to quickly count. There's uh, 18, 17 or 18 songs are all listed with the writer, which is even more interesting to me as one of those people who's done kind of catalogs of Kiss demos because he sure corrected me. Hmm. So... We're in late 1971, and these demos are recorded by Ron Johnson, who produced the demo tape, and he shopped it around to a bunch of different labels and really had no success, right? And uh, eventually, at some point, the tape wound up in the hands of Epic Records. Tom Werman. Yes, the Tom Werman. And what happened when it landed at Epic Records? It went thud as it hit the floor. <laughs> Did they purchase it, the rights to the Masters? It has to be accepted that I don't know is a legitimate answer to a lot of these questions because I've never seen a contract or anything from Wicked Lester relating to the business arrangements of what was going on. The only letters I've ever seen are Stephen Cornell getting fired by Gene and uh, Ron Lejack leaving the band. I've read somewhere that somehow or another Epic Records said a pass on Stephen Cornell, correct? Yeah, they, they, they passed on him, and that's why Ron came in, because he was a more experienced session guitarist. He'd recorded with Cactus. I mean, come on, that's, that was actually released. Mm -hmm. I'm looking at this um, article from, uh, I guess, late 1972. It says that the... It says that the Wicked Lester album is going to be released January 1st, 1973. It doesn't mention, I think, unless I'm mistaken, I'm, I'm scanning, scanning, and I don't see anything about the label. But, you know, everywhere you read, you read about Epic, right? That they were the ones involved with the Wicked Lester record. Yeah, ab absolutely. And you have to remember that because it sat in the vaults for many years after it was, it was uh, you know, rejected. And then when Kiss took off and, and they found out what they had, it's CBS by then. So that's a subsidiary of CBS or Columbia. 
Can I just ask for clarification about that? Because it, it's interesting. Like, so they it sat in their vault, meaning they they had no interest in it, but they didn't they didn't throw it away either. Signed the group, right? There's at no time was there going to be a record with the Epic imprint on it or whatever. No, there there was because they got an advance and they they used that advance to pay for a rehearsal hall. So you know, like the loft that was later used, they originally had a rehearsal place. So then Epic Records must have given them the option that we'll give you money to like seed this project and see where it goes, right? Like like a development deal. Yeah. So they basically wound up owning the masters as a result, right? Yes, they did. You know, because obviously uh, Casablanca had to buy them back from CBS when they started threatening to release it to cash in on Kiss. All right. So let me just say it this way. Epic Records, who purchased the masters and agreed to fund the recording of the full album... And one of their conditions, however, was that Stephen Cornell be fired and replaced with a better guitarist, which leads us to December 15th, when Ron Lee Jack officially joins Wicked Lester. Do we hear any recordings in those bootlegs that have Steve Cornell on them? Yeah, the demos. The first versions, probably that earliest version that circulated. I wouldn't be surprised if it had uh, somehow come out from, uh, from him. Or Ron, I guess either the either the guitarists would have reason to be kind of perturbed by the whole situation that had you know resulted from that that album. Because and again, I know I know I'm getting ahead of myself. We are going to talk about the music, but that you can hear in the different versions of some of these songs marked differences in the style of lead guitar. Uh, and I, you know, at some point, I want to clarify. I want us to talk about which one we think is or we know might be um, Cornell versus uh, Ron Lee Jack. Yeah, I I mean, to me, it's pretty clear, you know, the rougher, less developed ones. So read that as less time in the studio, messing around with things, replacing stuff is Steve. And the more refined, more precise, um, I I hate to say it because it's almost an insult, the more professional sounding guitar, the crisper, you know, better executed. It's come from a seasoned professional. Yeah. Yeah, that's fair. And from what I've read, the entire recording process of these, everything from the demo to the recording uh, sessions took about a year to complete, correct? Yeah, that that sounds about right. If you go from, say, call that acoustic reel August the 15th, they were recording through July 1972. July of 72. So, you know, very, very close to where Mr. Chris, who you mentioned at the top of the show, comes into the picture. And, you know, we almost have to thank Epic Records for giving him that seed money and that deal. When we, and here's the pimp a future episode of Podkistory, <laughs> you know, when we get to that point, I will have uh, mapped out the timeline in a much more understandable version where hopefully some of that additional information I kind of teased about someone working on a project, I'll be able to kind of work some of that in without killing their project. So again, they got a rehearsal space out of it and it was just another step along the road of the development of Gene and Paul predominantly. It was great that they had the business sense to invest it back into the band, if you will. It just shows that how they were much more serious about it than the other people in the band, right? Well, they were all looking for that. I mean, Gene in particular, he came in prepared. I mean, he'd saved, he'd worked, he had resources, but he also knew what he wanted to do. And Paul Stanley as well very much knew what he wanted to do. Brooke had a career path. Well, and became a, a teacher, 
Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he was already teaching, so it was very much a part-time. Um, Tony, he, he's someone I want to interview because I, I'd love to get his story a little bit more about his direction, especially from the perspective of a drummer. And drummers right. often don't get the respect um, as members of a band. So to give him his moments in the limelight, to give his opinion of when he came in and what he saw. Right, and we, we didn't mention him by name yet, but we're talking, I think, about Tony Zarella is the drummer who... Right, and we, we didn't mention him by name yet, but we're talking, I think, about Tony Zarella is the drummer who replaced Joe Davidson. Joe Davidson wasn't in for very long, and Tony, I assume, Tony Zarella is the person we hear on any of the recordings that we've ever heard. Correct. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. So, according to what I'm reading here, January 1972, the completed album was presented to Don Ellis, who was Epic's A&R director, and he stated that he hated the album and was not going to release it. I think his exact words were, I still say it stinks. <laughs> okay. So, you know, he also could have said, well, this doesn't sound like Kiss, but that would right. be really, that would be amazing foreshadowing, right? But, uh, and then from what I understand, the next day, Wicked Lester's manager, Lou Lennett, requested and received the group's release from Epic Records. So that's in January 1972. Well, there's also the, wait, January 1972. Yeah, I yeah. don't think so. I do oh. not think so. Okay, well then let me kill that. No, don't 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 kill it. Leave it all in the conversation because, you know, it it just makes it clear how muddled and muddy the waters are when you're trying to navigate Lake Wicked Lester. It's not like going to one of the Finger Lakes. It's not smooth sailing up there. It really is one of those stories that's convoluted that you have hearsay, and it's just again, I love this. I love kind of talking through it. Well, with January seventy three. Well, with January 73, right, KISS plays their first concert at the end of January 1973. Th I mean, this is that era that is so interesting to me, where you've got Wicked Lester ending and KISS beginning at the same time, right? Ace auditioned, I think, in December of 72. Yeah, I mean, look at the ad, album out soon. Did that, Ace... That, that did Paul Ace, had put in uh, The Village Voice. Ace auditioned for Wicked Lester. He auditioned for a band with no name. Okay. Mm. Peter was in Wicked Lester. We know that. Right. We're going to get there. We're going to get there. Okay. okay. So in February, you mentioned Peter Chris. Lips recorded demos at RCA Studios in New York City. Uh, just, and again, to clarify, February 1972, Wicked Lester is still a going concern. Yeah. They're trying to, to keep things going. Uh, things aren't going so well with Epic. And we've got Peter Chris across town, February 22nd. Lips record demos at RCA Studios in New York City. And according to this author, Julian Gill, the band is supplemented with additional session rhythm guitarist John Amato. Five songs would be demoed, Baby Driver, Dirty Living, Baby Don't You Let Me Down version one, You're My Woman, and Baby Don't You Let Me Down full length. So That wasn't me. That wasn't you? No, that was Stan Pendridge. Well, he told me that. Oh, so okay. He, yeah, no, that was that, that that information goes back to when I was in in touch with Stan. Um, God, that's way way back. That's like a lifetime ago. So yeah, that that was straight from Stan's mouth, and he and Peter do, uh, of course, uh, have conflicts in their memories. But that's that's the date he gave me. 
See, that's the thing. You know, everybody talks about rock history like it's something that is 100%, but this is the legend, right? <laughs> the story grows as the legend's told. Or what, what's the line from... Uh... Yeah. The legend's growing as the story's told. Yeah, so the legend's growing here. Now, uh, spring and summer of 72, we've got some... Uh, gigs for wicked lester is that true quite possibly as they're finishing the album yeah because the album finishes in july spring summer 72 wicked lester play the richmond college armory to an empty hall ostensibly yeah i've got gene simmons online too he's saying well it wasn't really empty (laughs) we were there (laughs) yeah well julian it wasn't really empty i mean we were there so wicked lester performed in rio (laughs) nineteen eighty three to six hundred million and it's also saying here that Wicked Lester play a movie theater during intermission, so that must have been a lot of fun. that sounds like Rivoli or Rivoli Rivoli, you know because that was a movie theater, so it would have been the first time or the last time that you you know a band got up on stage during the intermission to play so it's not a, not unusual. I mean, Kiss was going to share the bill in '74 in Indianapolis uh, on, with a movie. So, do we know what movie it was? Either in either time, Vogue Cinema, Indianapolis. Uh, they were scheduled to play. Plus, on the screen, a concert movie like you've never seen before, Stamping Ground. Oh, which was, what is Stamping Ground? Uh, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right. Kralingen or Kralingen, like a... a It was a a Dutch music festival? Yeah, 1970, Pink Floyd performed. uh, The Soft Machine, I think, played. um, Jefferson Airplane Starship, one of those, I think. I mean, yeah, ton. Yep. The Birds, Santana, T-Rex, Dr. John, Canned Heat, and more. Yeah, there was a concert movie made about it that features a little bit of Pink Floyd. It, it was um, a really cool festival. But God, that would have been incredible. I'm sorry. Now I'm geeking out. because Just imagine Gary Schaller, whose like, two Ooh. favorite bands are probably yeah. Kiss and Pink Floyd. Yeah. A young Gary Schaller able to, to, go, to <laughs> go back in time and sit there and watch this movie about a band you love. And then the early prototype version of KISS is playing that same day. Oh, no, this is KISS 74, I think, right? This is... Yeah, this this one is KISS 74. Right. I assume we don't know what movie was the... Yeah, I mean, when it was Wicked Lester and they played the intermission. I don't... Yeah. Yeah, no one knows that. This is the only case where we know anything of what might have happened had KISS not canceled this. And, of course, they were billed as direct from England. KISS. (laughs) That's great. Mm-hmm. So Wicked Lester's trying to do some shows, but in May of that year, Peter, Chris, and Lydia take a belated honeymoon holiday in England in May. That's right. So July of 72, Wicked Lester studio sessions, and they're mixing the album. In terms of the date, I mean, I have a tape that came from a certain vault somewhere else that actually listed as July 72. So that's when I think they would have been doing the final mixing on this album for, its, for it to get its final rejection. I want to ask about something related to to that again that transitional period because I think we're discussing that right we're if we're talking about summer of 72 right Wicked Lester is still a band that features Tony Zarella, Brooke Ostrander, Ronley Jack. Mhm. Okay. We've seen we've all seen drawings by Gene Simmons 
the one that comes to mind is like a superhero guy with a winged helmet, I guess. And it says anything to make the head look different. Yeah. You familiar with that drawing? Mm -hmm. Yes. You know what I'm talking about? Right. Okay. So the, you know, the, the legend is that Gene and Paul, but you know, perhaps especially Gene maybe wanted to, to make sure that it was like a visual band, that they were an active, interesting thing to watch. Um, you know, and found Wicked Lester to be not that group, not not that group musically and not that group visually. Mm -hmm. But what at what point in all of this do we know where those drawings sit in that timeline? Do we know if Wicked Lester was ever a theatrical rock group uh, with those original guys, I should say? I don't think so. I think that this was after they realized that the concept or whatever the concept was of Wicked Lester was just simply not going to get them to the next level, that they had to change things. Oh, no, I was just going to say, Julian, apart from the stuff when, you know, once Peter joins, we know that makeup goes on their faces. We know, we know that that starts. No, the makeup doesn't start first. You know, Gene's been very, actually, Gene's had one of the greatest explanations about Wicked Lester and why it didn't work, that they were sitting back looking at the band. There was a tall guy. There was a fat guy. There was a short guy. There was a guy with a beard. It visually had no, nothing tying it all together. It, it right. was all these different unique things that looked like a pop parade, uh, very New York City, but not very rock and roll. No, no, so, I, right. No, no, I'm clear on that. I'm saying that, what, you know, with Peter, the makeup comes in and they still have the name Wicked. Like, because, you know, there are photos we've seen. I'm looking at Lydia's book of the trio Wicked Lester that has Peter on drums and they're wearing white face, black eye makeup. Mm -hmm. Right. But but uh, but what I'm hearing is that there was never a Wicked Lester with Tony Bro. No. And Ron, that, that, would, that did anything visually uh, even remotely like Kiss? No, no, right. no. You know, all we have is that one photo that would have been part of the mm -hmm. album cover, the back cover, I think, uh, that would have been, which really shows them just being, you know, no, no white face. Yes, mm -hmm. the, the trio with Kiss, as we've seen from the photos that both Gene and Lydia have shared, do suggest that, you know, they had started playing around with that idea. Uh, but even that was just, you know, a, a test. It wasn't something that they went back to because you have to then think back to the first promo shots of Kiss in the stairwell. And, you know, that that's just a more New York Dollsy type look rather than the pure white face that you see with Kiss as a, a we, we shouldn't even call it Kiss, with Gene, Paul and Peter as a trio. Right. So about that really, really quickly again, I just want to talk about this thing. It's a it's actually in your book, uh, Julian. And oh it's, God! Um, it's written in crayon. Some of the letters are backwards. No, and there was no, a typo. Right? No, it's the thing. It's a quote from Gene talking about firing Ron Lee Jack. Okay, and 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 the story. I won't read the whole thing, but the story is about you know asking him to stand up, and he's no man. I'm a musician. I'm sitting down. So, so Ron Lee Jack is saying that the rejection from Epic was catalytic for him leaving the group. He says, it's when I left, they were rejected because they, Epic, wanted me in the group. And in the situation I was in, I didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings. Ron recalled, after the album was done, we started rehearsing. And that's when they asked Fire, Brooke, and Tony. And soon after, that's when they got my resignation. Not that soon after. I've got his resignation letter right here. So. Uh, Ron, Ron Lee Jack? Ron Lee Jack. When, what's the, do you know the date on that? Uh, sorry. I mean, I'm assuming summer, summer 72, fall 72. Wrong. His actual letters are January the 15th, 
1973. And <laughs> I, I have two of them. And one is to Lou Lynette, and the other is to Ron Johnson. And I'll read you, uh, here's the one to Lou. I hereby notify you of my decision to leave Wicked Lester under the terms of our agreement of July the 1st, 1972, as amended by Ryder, August the 18th, 1972. You want dates? You got dates. Nice. Thank you. See, this is awesome. (laughs) So around the same time that they're mixing the album, the guitarist quits. Right, because you know he says, as of our discussion or our agreement of July. I mean, this had to be such a crap show. Well, recording an album on spec time, yeah, of course it is. Well, but yeah, but but if you've got you know solidarity and and a and a kind of collective vision or whatever, and everybody's you know on the same team, great. But it seems like this was just you know they're recording an album as they're breaking up or something like that, or they're mixing an album. It honestly sounds like the monkeys were put together more uh, uh, <laughs> organically than Wicked Lester was. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Gene Simmons has went on record as saying that Wicked Lester looked like a bunch of guys waiting for a bus, not a band. They didn't have a uniform look. That was one of his big things that he would say in interviews about Wicked Lester. Right. No, I, I remember that. Yeah. Although, you know, you look at that picture, the, the one picture that we have that we know of Wicked Lester, they, they, if they're walking down the street, I, I think people would maybe mistake them for a rock band. You know, they look like uh, they look like Black Sabbath plus one other dude. <laughs> they, they look more like the Doobie Brothers or Black Oak, Arkansas or something. Yes. Yeah. 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 yeah you know, you know Wicked, Wicked Lester is a bunch of people who had no idea what they were doing. I mean. I found the article while we've been talking, and, you know, Brooke had started teaching in 1969, so he always had a career path, and what this article does remind me is that the date is 1971, when Wicked Lester played a 7th through ninth grade dance at McManus Junior High School, so there, that's the date in question that was recorded as well, an additional one, so... Uh, the the kid who said that he recorded that show also said that he recorded a second show for the band. So you go through July, July 72 again. That's the date on this tape from Polygram's Vaults. You know, a bunch of different mixes and segues between tracks. It's been out there for years. So it, I'm not, you know, dropping any bombshell. But it clearly was noted in the studio reels that it came from that it was November 71 through July 72. July 72, you then have Ron Lejack signing an, uh, his agreement with the band. So who knows what that was? Did he come in and do recording sessions earlier, and this was just his actual paperwork joining the band, moving on from being a session player, um, and then, of course, amended by August 72. So, again, what those arrangements are, you know, Go back and ask Ron. I mean, he's still around. I'm sure he would love to talk a little bit more about Wicked Lester for the 18,000th time. You know, I think that we've spent more time talking about Wicked Lester today than Ron Lejack was actually in the band. (laughs) So we've got the Wicked Lester studio sessions where they're mixing the album. Ron Lejack is already checking out. You've read the letter. At around that same time, Peter Chris places an ad in Rolling Stone magazine, and Gene Simmons spots the ad. 
Yeah, so here we are, August 1972. So let me just throw some more dates back at you. Because when you look at the real cover for when they'd completed mixing the album, um, and this has circulated for years, but uh, the date on that, 17th of August 1972. Hmm, where did I just hear that? When we were talking about Ron Lee Jack and his writer. So that would certainly seem to indicate that the album was being mixed at the same time. Peter Chris is putting that ad in Rolling Stone number number 116. August the 31st, 1972, issue number 116. And it's got Randy Newman on the cover. Who would later wear Kiss makeup. It all comes back full circle. Were Tony Zarella and Brooke Ostrander fired from Wicked Lester? I have no idea. Right, because that's... Because that's this, you know, in, in, in the book, it's, you know, there's a thing here about um, Ron Lee, Jack leaving and Brooke and Tony were out already fired. Yeah. You know, that, that's that's the assumption. I don't think Peter's ever mentioned in anything of them being anywhere in the picture when he came around, other than when he auditioned with Gene and Paul. The first audition, he had to actually use Tony's drums. So does that indicate that Tony's out of the picture? Not completely. His drums are still there. And Peter played them at his first audition and didn't like them or the material that he was playing. And we're talking about days. I mean, this is, you know, they're, they're mixing the album in July. And days later in August, Peter is playing that drum kit. Amazing. Right? Yeah. So autumn of 72, Peter Chris joins Wicked Lester, who then continue as a trio in addition to Gene and Paul still working with the other band of the same name. Well, and, and that's interesting, right? Because if Brooke and Tony are gone and Ron is tendering his resignation or in the process of those discussions, right? Julian, is it fair to say that at this point, very late 72, that lineup of Wicked Lester that recorded the album no longer exists? Gene and Paul are mixing an album of a now defunct band. Essentially, they're just trying to get it released to make money. Do you, you know, know the, if they would have? Uh, I mean, they had every intention of releasing it at that point, right? And then, and then being Wicked Lester, ostensibly with Peter, Chris, and makeup on their faces. Well, we don't know that. Well, we do know that, though. No, hold on, hold on. Gene and Paul did not put their eggs in one basket, right? As as Wicked Lester was not developing, it was time for a new Wicked Lester to develop. And basically, we had Ron Lee Jack quit. We don't know what happened exactly with Tony, Zarella, and Brooke, but something did, right? And like it says here that Paul and Gene were still working with the other band of the same name. Meanwhile, there are auditioning with peter chris so gene and paul are not going to go down with the ship of what was wicked lester they were smart enough not to put all their eggs in one basket as it sank right mm. and at this time they've now got peter chris gene simmons paul stanley and peter chris are now wicked lester and they're doing everything they can to stay afloat. As a matter of fact, Paul and Gene get a gig singing background vocals on Lynn Christopher's debut album. They appear on three tracks on the album, which is released in early 1973. During this time, Gene, Paul, and Peter also do AMC commercials. Do we have those, Julian? No. What we do have Gene, Paul, and uh, and and Peter doing, and actually it's only Gene and Peter, is uh, recording with members of Peter's former band, Chelsea, the, uh, in a project that was called Death, Rattle, and Roll. So yeah. that stuff's out there as well. That whole that whole uh, album has 
now leaked. Um, really? And it's got Gene on bass and Peter on drums on some of the songs. It's amazing. I didn't know that. You're blowing my mind. Is there a way we could play some of that? Just a, something that's indicative of what they sounded like? Just a clip or something? Yeah, no, that that's uh, another thing that serviced one of the band members a few years ago. And I felt vindicated because I'd written about it. I'd had contact with people who told me the story about Death Route on Roll costing $100,000 to record for Dick James' music, and then it was shit-canned, and how Gene and Paul had played on it. And they were wrong about Paul, but they were absolutely right about Gene and Peter. So to have that whole album come out, and let's see if I can find some of it, um, just so I can give you a song title wait so julian was this just to be clear was this like here's a gig let's make some money or was this let's start a band for which death rattle and roll that was just a session it was uh helping out peter shapley and mike brand in one of their new projects which just showed that the you know they were working you know okay yeah the the band was actually called captain sanity and they recorded this album with songs uh peter chris played on a song called for children Nice to know somebody to believe. Uh, Gene joined him on that one. Moonrider, that'll be the song I recommend you play, uh, was both Gene and Peter. And then three last songs with Peter, uh, Death Rattle and Roll, Do the Moon, and Whisper. And it was recorded at Record Plant, Vanguard Studios, and Bell Sound in New York City. Jesus. And the name of this band is? It's been called Captain Sanity now, because... Uh, Mike Brand, who I think put out the recordings on YouTube, where you can go listen to the whole thing, just needed a name to give it. But it was referred to as Death, Rattle, and Roll back in the early 70s when it was uh, recorded. So here is Death, Rattle, and Roll, or Captain Sanity with Moonrider.
Wow, you know, you think you know history, right? I mean, <laughs> I have been studying Kiss since like 1975, seriously, and this stuff just comes out of nowhere, right? You know, here's the thing to remember: as someone, I I don't call myself an archivist or a historian because that's really pompous as hell. Yeah, but it looks good on a business card. We can no, all agree no, on that. No, it, no, it doesn't because I'm a fan and they're the band. I just compile information, but. It is this stuff that keeps me going, because if you think here we are, nearly 50 years on, and we're finding out stuff about bullfrog beer, we're seeing pictures of Gene circa 1970, uh, we're finding out that Lita was definitely not Brooke Strander on piano, and that was one of the guys from the Catskills. I love this. Mm. I, don't, I don't need Kiss to stay on the road forever, because we're going to find out things that only geeks are going to care about at the end of the day <laughs> right it's here the most you <laughs> yep. can't even use this in casual conversation to impress anyone it's not going to win you any trivial pursuit it's just and believe gonna, me i've tried damn it you know, like, <laughs> it, it just doesn't come up and that's what keeps me excited and invested in uncovering information spending time in libraries reading obscure magazines keeping an ear to the ground like uh I'm just trying to find a, a, a name uh, because he does so much work on the lineups. And uh, Ola Sorensen, MC Paco, is just an incredible person who cares about the lineups of all the KISS and related associate, associated bands. And it's because of him and his efforts that we benefit and learn about Bullfrog Beer and um, Jella Jansen, who... Um, you know, contacted Anna Dalva, who played with Gene pre-Kiss. You know, oh it's because of all these people whose names you often don't know, but it's the information that gets cut and pasted into Wikipedia or into a message board or onto Facebook that someone's actually made a lot of effort in finding out. And boy, are we grateful, you know? Yeah, got to give give these people a round of applause and mm -hmm. uh, eternal thanks. Yes. Amazing! Wow, that I didn't. I've never heard that story before. No, I, I didn't know about like the stuff about Peter and Gene playing together on that other thing. That is news. I'm looking at Lydia's book and I'm thinking about December '72, January '73. So the the thing I want to the thing I want to imagine is you know you're Gene and Paul. It's this time, these months. Um, you you and you're you're done with. Uh, Ron Lee Jack, Brooke Ostrander, and Tony Zarella. That is that's probably done. And you've you've got Peter Chris joining this band that is still called Wicked Lester. They start putting makeup on their faces. Uh, and the intention, at least in late in December, right, was next month the record is coming out. Oh shoot, hold on, I'm sorry. The intention, at least, as I understand it, is that next month we're going to have this record out. Do we think that Gene and Paul were in intending to put the record out and market it as this band with the, with the makeup? I do. 
so there's this alternate dimension in which the Wicked Lester record does come out early 1973, and we have maybe an album cover with at least Gene, Paul, and Peter in makeup. Wearing sailor costumes. <laughs> sailor costumes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm looking at, yeah, so there, here's this article, LP analysized. If one tried to describe them, they might be classified as a, quote, Led Zeppelin with makeup, as Pete Chris has told me. Chris with one S. That's right. You heard right. Makeup. Another group to hit the rock scene with makeup, but not to be confused with Alice Cooper. They have an act that backs up their music. Alice, on the other hand, uses music and theatrics in. Yeah, there's something wrong here, but it. But it's in. This isn't. Sorry. No, it, it. It really didn't make any sense. Yeah. No. It's. It, I'm. Yeah. It's. It's a. Uh, you know, in her book, that is music backs up act. Act backs up music. I have seen photos that Pete's wife Lydia took, and believe me, phew, their faces are painted white with assorted colors around the eyes. How about that, Alice? Pete also told me that they have one small act so far in which. First, buckets full of confetti are tossed into an audience. That about wraps it up for now. So once again, be on the lookout for Wicked Lester. Who wrote, who wrote this? Wicked Lester's uh, Richie B. And this was, uh, you know, it's in Lydia's book and it's not, it doesn't say, it doesn't say what it's from. You know, what, what it looks like in Lydia's book, and I'm not, uh, I, I don't know for sure. It looks like it, this was recreated, this clipping doesn't actually look like it's a it's a an historical clipping do you have does anyone do you either of you have lydia's book on hand lp analyze richie b richard brooks okay yeah so again this is from sealed with a kiss which is lydia chris's book and it's on page 61 and if you don't have this book shame on you buy it and that review is written by rick fox oh wow who's rick fox he was dating one of peter's sisters and oh. he was later in a band called Keel. Oh, oh, he was yeah. in a, ba- a little band you might have heard of called Wasp. Oh, oh, he was oh, right there, okay. the foundation of it. He was in a lot of bands okay. that went on to great success after he left the bands. Amazing, <laughs> okay. amazing. And he had part of a song borrowed by Dana Strum for a Vinnie Vincent song. Hmm. That's that thing that's that I'm getting stuck on, right? This thing of we got a record coming out. We are Wicked Lester. We wear makeup. No. I don't think we have a record coming out where Wicked Lesser wear makeup. I think the part is very clear from Paul's Village Voice ads. Record out shortly, or album out shortly, I think he said. Um, so it was clear that they planned on releasing something. Was it going to be that album? It could well have been. And could they have been thinking along the lines of, well, God, we've got some material on here, love her all I can, simple type, she, keep me waiting, that we could easily do with the new band, because that's all kind of unified material mm-hmm. so they didn't know how ha- they didn't have sh- anything for image at that point that all comes in january and onwards right i i, I know i'm i know i'm perseverating on this but this is so fascinating to me because this is an interview with peter chris it's a thing by richard brooks rick fox the album and group in the spotlight is called wicked lester a formidable enough name for a group when one lays eyes upon them the album features some of the heaviest i mean heavy music around if you really dig that heavy black sabbath sound without that same rep, uh, rep- repetitious beat um this album makes number one i have been informed by the group's drummer peter chris that the album was released on january 1st 1973 wow <laughs> yeah but you also again go back to who richard is 
he's hanging out at the rehearsal loft with Peter, Paul, and Gene. He heard this album. He would have heard it. Yeah. So he would have heard. He would have known that "Keep Me Waiting" is a heavy song, especially if they're playing it in rehearsal. Because what are the songs that Wicked Lester did for its final showcase? And sometime in November 1972, Peter, Gene, and Paul performed for A and R an epic one final time. They play Deuce. They play Strutter. They play Firehouse. So now you add those three songs to the four that I've just mentioned. Go look at the set list for January 1973 when Kiss plays for the first time. You've got songs in that very first set. You've got Deuce. You've got Watching You, Lover All I Can, She, Simple Type, Keep Me Waiting, Want You Beside Me, which everyone is now, and Firehouse. So you've got all those songs. Yeah, it's heavy. Deuce. Can you get more Black Sabbathy, or you know that that's what the heavy version of the Rolling Stones bitch? So it's exactly what that review says. So they that's why I say they may well have been intending on releasing that Wicked Lester album, taking the heavier stuff that they had written. You know they weren't going to come storming onto stage, puking blood, throwing confetti, going as you did at the top of the show, Gary, singing Molly. Are they? <laughs> that's gone. But she is very easy to transition into kiss right or what became kiss so that's kind of my thinking on it and i have absolutely nothing to back it up with you want evidence you want fact you want proof sorry got none that's just gut yeah no it makes and and what you're saying makes total sense right it's uh it's hard to imagine that they would have tried to make it with that image and that heavy sound while uh riding on an album that was so mellow yeah, and, and, and late November, they're still trying with Epic to keep things moving along. You know, so here's our new material. Let's get that album out. This stuff can go on the second album or we can record it quickly to mix in, uh, regardless of how they were thinking. And we don't know. This is just, uh, again, uh, because Gene and Paul haven't kind of covered this area of this history, uh, nor Peter, for that matter, um, in their books that you kind of have to piece together what seems to make sense and it can still be completely wrong. So why would Paul put out an ad saying album out shortly if he didn't think there was going to be? Yeah, sure, that's fine. You can bring people in because you want people to come into your rehearsals. But did he still think there was a chance in early December when he places that ad in The Voice? Had uh, Epic already gotten back to them and severed ties? We don't know. Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We don't right. But 
you can imagine Paul trying to leverage that piece, the fact that they had this potential record coming out and they were trying to put it out, trying to Mm -hmm. leverage that in order to attract a lead guitarist, in order to attract business and and, uh, a following. Very good. Now, I want to talk about Wicked Lester Mach 2 since that's what was coming to an end. On October 13th, Stephen Cornell gets paid for his performance on the aborted Wicked Lester album. He got a sum total of $200. So that's uh, tidying up the business end wrap-up on that. We know that Wicked Lester had a manager, Lou Lennett. What happened to him? He lived happily ever after. Isn't he also Kiss's manager initially? Initially, yeah. He, he stays involved. He wasn't their manager as such, but he did play a role in the story, as did Ron Johnson, who are both kind of co-managing uh, Kiss during its embryonic stage. I mean, Ron is generally considered to have been their first manager. So mm-hmm. he, he, he remains in the picture, but he eventually begs off just because the music was far heavier than what was in his wheelhouse and that he was comfortable, you know, being being associated with which was just as well it left the band you know, it gave the band much of the year to kind of find themselves and then for the other pieces to fall into place with bill O'Coin and sean delaney well from your fantastic site kissmonster.com it's got here november 1972 wicked lester still plays as a trio and they play a showcase for epic A&R man Don Ellis at the loft resulting in the band finally being dropped by Epic. So it was this actual appearance. <laughs> it was Kiss playing the showcase that got them out of their contract. And is this the one where Peter's brother vomits on his Yes, own? I'm getting there. Hold on. Okay. Don apparently didn't get the image changes that Lester was going through, having a bucket of confetti throwing over them during Firehouse, or Peter's brother puking over his shoes. Two songs are performed, Strutter and Deuce. So they went from uh, throwing confetti to puking on shoes. So there you go. Mm. Uh, December of 1972, feeling the need to embellish the band's sound with a second guitarist, Paul Stanley places an ad in Village Voice for guitarists with Flash, suggesting that the band had an album out soon. Flash and ability, not balls. Yes, flash and ability, yes, correct. Sometime during this period, Ace Fraley additions for the band, jamming out to Deuce with them, where he lets rip with every lick he knows. Contrary to popular belief, Ace does not interrupt Bob Kulik's audition by just plugging in and playing, but he does audition after Bob Kulik finishes. Ace is then asked back for a second edition, and Ace is hired and then informed that the band doesn't actually have a record deal anymore. Huh. Oh, by the way, you know the whole thing about the album? Yikes, yikes, yikes. Ouch, ouch, ouch. Awkward. <laughs> Ron Johnson continues as the band's manager, a role that he had performed since Wicked Lister days, in addition to engineering duties at Eddie Kramer's Electric Lady Studio. Ace is a member of the band by December 25th, 1972. Hmm. And that comes from Lydia. She's adamant that he was a member of the band by Christmas 72. So, Wow. So December 27th, Paul receives the payment of $1,200 from the epic advance from Wicked Lester's manager, Lou Lennett. On January 1973, on the 15th, Ron Lee Jack officially leaves Wicked Lester, and at some time right after that, the Wicked Lester name is finally dropped, and they become KISS. 
the band's name no longer a selling point in the industry, the band considers new names, including Fuck, Crimson Harpoons, Albatross, and even Rainbow, again, before Paul comes up with what would be the band's name while he, Peter, and Gene are together in a car. And on the 20th, Ace comes up with the KISS logo, and Paul would refine that. And that really is where we're getting off on this episode, because that's history. I don't want to finish. I know you don't. <laughs> well, that's good. Let me ask another question of our uh, esteemed and astute guest. Julian, do we know, apart from that A&R showcase, did three-piece Wicked Lester make up Peter Chris ever perform any other live music? Other than rehearsing, no. Yeah, okay. That's the, the only one. And again, those dates come from Kurt and Jeff for the epic stuff and Ken as well. Uh, Plug to their book. Kiss Alive oh. Forever. Very good. But uh, here's uh, you know one thing that you haven't kind of uh, covered is some of the other stuff that exists in relation to Wicked Lester that we've only discovered in recent years. Wicked Lester actually had a logo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that logo was created by the designer who created the Rock and Roll Over album cover. And Sonic Boom. What? Michael yep. Doray? Yep. How about that? He actually came up with a logo. He was hired, I believe, by Epic to design the Wicked Lester logo, and he only realized that in his portfolio a few years ago. And it's a it's absolutely insane logo. I mean, and we I'll had let, him on our show. And, I, and, not, and you, you did, uh, and you didn't yeah. ask him. Well, he so wasn't even aware of it know. at the time. He didn't even know. Yeah, he had he, forgotten it. You know, everyone's seen that kind of red ribbon Wicked Lester logo that was drawn in one of Gene's sketchbooks. I mean, Gene, I mean, he's so full of ideas. He was always writing things down. He was always sketching out ideas, whether it was costumes for Wicked Lester or possible stage arrangements for bands. I mean, he was really like the ultimate, you know, student doodling on his notebooks. Just these ideas and just to think of how many of his ideas came true. But... Wicked Lester. They got as far as having an album cover f- photo, which was, of course, recycled and used for the Laughing Dogs in 1979. They had a logo. They had a band picture, which presumably would have been the back album photo on that packaging. It's amazing. It really did get very far along the creative process that it not getting released was stunning. Mm-hmm. 
And you're not talking, Julian, are you, about the Wicked Lester tambourine? Oh, goodness me, no. The dream right. catcher. Wait, so wait, what is, what is the logo you're talking about here? Well, hold on, hold on. Stop, stop. Let's wrap this up, and we'll talk about that on the next one. Because we're already an hour and a half recording. We can talk about the album, the artwork, the concept, and the songs next time. Sound good? And, and the CBS remix and all that? Yes. We have to stop at this point in history because this is absolutely amazing. And though it seemed jumbled and crazy, and we unpacked it as much as we could, that's some of the story of Wicked Lester. Something that happened over a year and a half to two years that led to KISS to what we love is KISS. On the next episode of the podcast, we are doing a track-by-track of the Wicked Lester album. What does that mean? What was the cover supposed to be? What was the track listing? What were the bootlegs that we ran into? We're going to do an actual track-by-track by of one of the versions and talk about the different versions of the Wicked Lester album. I know, again, it's confusing. What we're trying to piece together is from somebody's memory (laughs) from 1971 to 72 to 73. So I'm excited, aren't you, Julian? Yeah, because it's as convoluted as those memories that have given us little drips and drabs of the history over the years. And that's why it's very hard to give order to. I mean, I I know people like facts. They like something that's legalese, that's absolute. And it's just not possible. And that's what keeps it exciting, um, especially when you're able to fill in blanks eventually. The legend's growing as the story's told. Nice. Exactly. And I think that's a great place for us to leave this part of our discussion on Wicked Lester, and I'm so excited to see where we go with the track-by-track with you two gentlemen and myself. I love deep diving back into Kistry, or in this case, Wicked Lestery. It doesn't really have the same bounce to it that Kistry does. (laughs) No. No. And, And after seeing that logo, I don't think I would have been able to doodle it on my notebook. So we will talk on the next episode of the podcast, the logos of Wicked Lester, the covers (laughs) of Wicked Lester, the different versions of Wicked Lester, the remastering and the remixing and how we wound up getting some of it on the 2001 five disc kiss box set. We've got a lot coming, folks, so we want to thank you for listening to the podcast today. Thank you, Julian Gill, for being with us and classing up the joint. Well, thanks so much for inviting me. It's been a blast just to try and put this together. It's one funny-looking jigsaw puzzle. Oh, it's, it is a jigsaw puzzle for sure. And, Gary, it's great to have you behind the mic as well. Oh, heck yeah. We'll see you all on the next episode of Your Podcast. Going on 15 years coming this January. Hard to believe. Holy smokes. You're a legend. Uh, all right. Well, we want to thank you for listening to Your Podcast. Tell a friend. Share it up. Julian Gill, give us your links. Yeah, you can find me at kissfaq.com. There you go. And remember, check us out over on Twitter and Instagram. Now there is a podcast Instagram page. And we have some new people that we'd like to welcome to the podcast social media team. And that is Cameron Duty and John Carter. And they are proud members of the KISS Army and proud members of the Podcast Army. And those guys are going to help 
the podcast with its social media presence. Who knew 14 years ago when we started this that we would need a social media presence, but here we are. <laughs> Follow us on Instagram over at podcast and on Twitter at podcast as well. And of course, our own jumpin' Gene Simmons has been in the hospital with kidney stones, and we wish him all the best and uh, happy anniversary to him and Shannon. So, yes, we'll see you on the next episode of your podcast. Bye. And that is our show. Thanks again for listening. Be sure to check us out on the web at www.podcast.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on iTunes. If you'd like to contact the podcast, please drop us a line at podcast at gmail.com. Big thanks to Julian and everyone at kissfaq.com. They've got great information there and a terrific message board, too. Thanks also to Keith LaRue and everyone else at Kiss Online for their great work representing the hottest band in the land. And as always, a big thanks to Paul Stanley, Gene Simmons, Ace Fraley, Peter Chris, Vinnie Vincent, Bruce Kulick, Eric Singer, Tommy Thayer, and the memory of the late great Eric Carr, and the late great Mark St. John. You are KISS, and we are your army. Podcast is created by the KISS Army for the KISS Army, and it is available for free as an internet download. If you like what you hear on our show, go buy it and support the people who made it. Podcast is not affiliated with KISS or any of its members past or present. On behalf of myself, Ken, and the whole rest of the Podcast crew, Thank you for listening to Podcast, the KISS fanzine for your ears. I just want to remind everybody that uh, Michael Doray... What's that? Go on. That Ken's nipples are hard and that Michael Doray's ex-wife, Wendy Doray, was my mentor, advisor in graduate school. So basically, I was in Wicked Lester. Just, just a reminder. Kind of. You were one of the uh, <coughs> Mach 15 of that's right. Wicked yeah. Lester. Yes, We've that's unmasked right. yeah. Wicked Lester's tambourine player. Thank you. You're welcome, everybody. Whose makeup was being unmasked. Yeah, that's right. There's a zen thing for you. Oh, my motherfuckers. God. Yeah. Yes, me too. Did it sound like I was being a jerk-off, Julian? No, no, no. I just... I I asked Julian, not you. Gary, what's the correct answer to the question? <laughs> 42. <laughs> no. Gene, how was that burger? Pretty good. Well, it's a family show, but it's so good I swallowed. <laughs> Excellent. There you go. It's a great event. That's how they like to give back here. So some pretty cool good, uh, things happening here at Rock and Brews. And I should stop talking because my mouth is full. So I'm going to send it back to you guys in the studio, but get the good stuff while you we can. We want to rock guys. and roll and party every day. <laughs>